Hello. Um, I wanted to welcome you all here. My name is Seth Manukin. I'm the Associate Director of the Communications Forum. Uh, this is the final forum of the semester, um, and we are definitely going out with a bang. Uh, I'm incredibly, incredibly excited about tonight. Um, and I'm going to introduce our speakers, and then my job for the evening will be done. Uh, Nick Montfort, um, immediately to my left, uh, is going to be the moderator of tonight's discussion. Um, Nick is a professor here in comparative media studies uh, and writing and is scarily prolific. Uh, I feel like every time I get up to go to the bathroom, I hear about another book that he has just published. Um, his most recent book is, uh, uh, and I go to the bathroom a lot. Um, <laughs> his most recent book uh, is Shebang, um, and not spelled just like it sounds. Uh, and that contains both computer programs and poems. Um, uh, he's written a number of books uh, in collaboration with other authors, several of which are on sale outside. Um, to Nick's left is uh, Fox Harrell, who uh, is also here at MIT, um, is actually not physically here this year, so uh, I was very pleased that we were able to rope him into uh, flying across the country and uh, joining us here. Um, his work explores the relationship between imaginative cognition and computation. Um, and his book, Phantasmal Media, An Approach to Imagination, Computation, and Expression, was published last year, and that will also be uh, on sale outside. Um, and then we are very, very excited to welcome Lev Manovich uh, here as well. Lev is a professor of computer science um, at the graduate program at the graduate center at CUNY. Uh, is also the author of a number of books, including Software Takes Command um, and The Language of New Media, which was described as the most suggestive and broad-ranging media history since Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he is the founder of director of the Software Studies Initiative, a group that works on the analysis and visualization of big cultural data. Uh, and please join me in welcoming him and our other speakers. So I'm really glad to uh, uh, be able to join uh, Fox and Lev and to welcome them to present some about their current work. Um, Lev actually um, has been a collaborator of sorts since for more than a decade because he uh, wrote uh, an introduction to the New Media Reader, which uh, was very valuable for situating that book and um, describing the connection of this historical work to uh, the way that people think about new media theoretically. And uh, Fox is a current collaborator. We might have occasion to talk about the project that we're working on, SLANT, which is a story generation system that involves um, other researchers in Mexico and, uh, and people here at MIT. Um, so uh, without further ado, let me uh, let Lev start us off. Um, and uh, we'll then go through, after he and Fox present, some, uh, some questions, I think, that bring together uh, a lot of the work that we do um, from our different perspectives. And, okay, uh, so I actually uh, agreed uh, to collaborate with Nick on this panel, and she said that we, with me and Fox should talk for about 15 minutes, and we can actually have real discussion, so it's not going to be a series of mini lectures, so please do kind of after maybe 17, maybe 19 minutes maximum, kind of please break me. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I think to situate kind of my work in relation to this panel about the kind of creative possibilities of computing, uh, to a certain extent, the first part of my life was maybe more directly relevant to that. 
you know, because I grew up in Russia, in Moscow, I was educated in art, architecture, kind of programming, came to New York in uh, 33 years ago, went to NYU, uh, did like film and video, even started to work with uh, 3D computer graphics exactly 30 years ago, and actually was accepted as a graduate student into a media lab uh, to work with Miriam Cooper, and completely stupidly didn't go. But every time I come, like, I feel like it's my alma mater anyway, because I end up doing exactly the same stuff, I think, as if I would go, if I would went. Um, so in the 90s and 2000s, I was kind of helping the emerging fields of digital art by writing all these books and all this theory, but I was also creating my own art projects, which would uh, generate things with computers. For example, projects such as soft cinema, where we use a database of hundreds of video clips, in the road with software, which would automatically generate narrative films out of, out, out, of, out of them. And then, I think once, you know, the computation and culture have become almost synonymous, uh, right, where now we have billions of photographers who snap wonderful pictures on Instagram, you know, billions of videographers putting their stuff on YouTube, billions of poets writing beautiful, you know, tweets, right? Everybody becomes digital artists. So how do you do something unique in this environment? Uh, I realized in 2005 that big data was coming, and I said, well, maybe I can use computers now in a different role, not only as a kind of generative uh, and expressive device, but as an analytical machine, right? As a machine which will help me to study cultural patterns and cultural past by visualizing and analyzing massive amounts of images and video. But of course, uh, I still remain to be, I think, somebody who committed to the creative and expressive part, because visualizations which we create in my lab, they're not only analytical, right? They're not only trying to reveal, you know, to use, right, this more, most kind of common uh, term, somewhat misleading, we're not only trying to reveal patterns in the data, we're actually trying to create an expressive representations out of data, right? So let's say if it was 100 years ago or 90 years ago, perhaps I would be a filmmaker or I would be doing photo montages and trying to figure out how to present a modern city using collections of pieces from newspapers or photographs, or maybe I'll be like writing a letter to Dilevertov, hoping he would accept me as his cameraman, so to try to represent the city out of thousands of shots. Well, today I can try to represent the city or other places or other phenomena, basically, you know, global visual culture, by creating montages of our representations out of millions and hopefully billions individual expressions. So the idea is not just to reveal patterns, not just to do something productive, but to actually do something expressive, to represent our time through millions of contributions of individuals on social media. So I will very, very briefly kind of run through uh, a few projects we've done in the last 16 months. Each project has its own website. All visualizations are downloadable in high resolution from Flickr. So if you're interested, please visit them. Uh, so the first project which we've done with social media was called Photo Trails. So it was our first attempt just to see what we can figure out with millions of Instagram photos using techniques which are not something which can be only described in computer science papers and published in some journal, but actually something which I can teach students in a couple of hours. So techniques are on purpose are very simple. So we downloaded 2.3 million Instagram photos from 13 global cities. And then we created kind of visualizations such as this one where each visualization takes a sample of about 50,000 photos. And the photos are simply organized by a couple of parameters. So it's not hard to guess that in this case, the brightness controls the position of the photo in relation to the center. 
and then uh, the perimeter of the angle of, of the angle of the photo is controlled by its average hue. Uh, let me I'll open this in Photoshop uh, so we don't have to wait for the computer to load. Okay, let me see if you are okay. So let's try to load these guys. Uh, so in all this project, we I mean one of the questions we wanted to ask is to say, so are we, is is the Phenomena such as Instagram, right? Is it actually allows us to look at the medium? Or is it itself a message? So, is the social media can be thought of as a kind of certain mirror, certain filter, certain way to understand what's actually happening in social reality out there, or is it only going to tell us about Instagram itself? So, is Instagram a medium or a message? And uh, I think HOS4 project is trying to kind of try to get at this answer. But I think it's very, very hard to answer. And in fact, maybe it's even impossible and, in fact, unreasonable to try to separate the different functions. Right? So if you look at these photos, you can say, well, you know, if you simply look at them through this very crude, a very simplistic instrument, uh, which the first instrument we constructed, of clustering photos by uh, where kind of color and brightness, all the cities look very similar. So here is Tokyo. Uh, right, this is San Francisco. This is Bangkok, right? Uh, and then if we take a look at the use of filters, we found something even more scary, right? So uh, this is the filters which were available on the Instagram uh, in the beginning of 2012 where we downloaded the data. So each uh, line basically shows you frequencies of this filter used in um, six different cities. And you can see it's almost exactly the same, right? Only with a couple of filters, we have a little bit of a difference. So this project, using a particular method, method of data collection and particular tools, right? Because I think just as a, like a physics 20th century, it's almost the instruments are going to influence what you're going to find. So using a particular apparatus which we constructed, you know, the answer which we get, look, you know, people are taking very similar photos in terms of contrast, brightness, and other uh, visual characteristics. We use the filters in the same way. So Instagram seems to impose some kind of universal global visual culture. So then we did the second project where we said, let's actually now, as opposed to comparing everything to everything, let's only compare apples to apples. Let's take a particular Instagram subject right, and only compare photos of a particular account. So we did the second project called Selfie City, where we downloaded, uh, where we kind of designed uh, a data set using a combination of computer vision and mechanical Turk techniques of 3,200 selfies from six, uh, five cities around the world, so 640 selfies from each city. And when we compared with selfies on a variety of characteristics using face analysis, and I will directly go to the interactive part of a website uh, where you actually uh, yourself can go and navigate this data set and look at, you know, look at these characteristics and compare them. Right? Uh, so the idea was also not just to do what everybody else does, which is presents the data as bar charts, pie charts, or line charts, but create interfaces which allow people to actually navigate and interact with you know, huge amounts of visual media. So uh, this is a whole data set. I mean, we couldn't show all of it because of limitations of like web speed. So I think you have to kind of go like this, but very quickly you can see everything. And then uh, what you have here is metadata, which comes from the data, right? So here is we can filter by different cities. Okay. And notice when you filter by city how our variables get adjusted. So, for example, here's the average age for all these photos. So if I select, for example, select 
Sao Paulo, right, you can see where there is a little bit more younger people. And if I go to Moscow, maybe actually a bit older people. So these things get adjusted. Uh, and then uh, here we have gender. Uh, so we, didn't, we don't have 40 gender labels, unfortunately, like Facebook and Instagram. So actually Facebook is way more progressive. But we do have something where people couldn't agree because we just used Mechanical Turk and um, where it's like undefined. But it doesn't mean it's a third gender, right? Basically, we just couldn't agree. And then we have these other variables, which are extracted by the computer, right, including various emotion variables. And you can say, well, you know, what about people who, like, really, really, the computer thinks are very happy? You know? Okay, what about people who computer thinks are really unhappy? Right? So it, it's actually not as bad as you would think, and you can kind of play with games. You can say, how about New York? Lots of probably unhappy people. Okay, this is this really unhappy people, uh, maybe angry and so on and so forth. So you can, how about calm people? Almost nobody calm in New York, right? So anyway, <laughs> yeah. So you can see, I mean, I think it kind of works. So what we actually, but basically what we found in this project, right, is that we actually, we did this, you know, very kind of classical statistical social science type analysis. We actually found that, in fact, there are very significant differences, but whether this is the differences in reality or whether this is the difference in how people present themselves on Instagram, it's kind of hard to say, right? But we did find interesting things, for example, you know, the big proportion, you know, di big difference in proportion between male and female users, uh, you know, different proportion, for example, average age, uh, smiles, and so on and so forth. So then after that, I said, okay, so that's, so what we've done here is we took this whole kind of cloud, right, of billions of Instagram photos, and we focused on a particular subject, which is selfies. What if we now do a different kind of zoom, a different microscopic view? What if we focus on a particular day, a particular time and space? So we did the next project, which is uh, called Exceptional Every Day, uh, where it's 144 hours in Kiev in February, you know, during the kind of so-called Maidan Revolution. So we downloaded uh, all Instagram photos. Uh, we'll be in a kind of certain square, which happens to be focused on the Maidan Square, so basically, you know, here's all events happening in the city. You know, somebody you know, drinking milk, you know, going to a party, taking selfies, you know, getting drunk. And then it so just happens that revolution took place, right, in the middle of it. So this is kind of a map. And uh, we did this project because what we found is that typically this kind of big data social research of what, for example, mass media does is we said, okay, we're going to report about something which is happening in point X, some revolution, upheaval, and there's definitely we're all aware about many important events like what's happening in the last you know, few years. You know, and we only going to focus what's happening at this point, you know, demonstration. But what else is happening in the city, right? So what we're interested is uh, almost do a kind of situation experiment to say we're going to limit the city to a square, you know, five by five kilometers. And it so happens that in the center of the square, you know, these events took place. And we're going to have a time frame of seven days. And we're going to look at every single Instagram photo regardless of whether it is relevant to revolution or not, just to see what was actually happening in the city, to what extent people participated, and how people were reacting to these events. So that's why the project is called about the everyday and the exceptional, and we're interested in how everyday and exceptional can spill into each other. Right? Uh, again, you know, I I'm, I'm not, don't have time to go in it, but this is, for example, all 13,000 Instagram photos, which we shared in the city, uh, organized by date and time, and if you look at the zoom level, you, can't, you don't even know what anything took place, right? You really have to zoom and look at particular tags to find out, and in fact, there's a very high rate of participation. 
So, uh, for example, this is the photos which were shared on the square. So now you actually see revolution beginning to become visible. Um, and then, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. And eventually you're looking at, for example, at the tags. And when you actually look at the tags, you can actually see that, you know, this is every day, a typical Instagram day, the same things you'll find in millions of places, right, with geographic location. And this typical Instagram, love, follow me, which don't mean love doesn't mean love on Instagram. It's just like a way to spread images around. Yeah, and then, you know, there's like nothing really specific about the Kiev, and then the revolution starts. All these tags like Euromaidan, Maidan revolution go to the top. On the third day, the local completely replaced the global. And then the moment revolution succeeded, now this kind of generic Instagram language starts to go in, right? But this is only top tags out of 6,000 unique tags and 32,000 tags, right? So does it actually mean people are really participating in revolution or we ignore it? Hard to say, right? Because nobody has done this analysis. So finally, uh, very briefly, maybe to show you the, the last one. So the last one uh, hasn't been published yet. It's uh, going to premiere next week. It's a commission from New York Public Library. So it's going to open New York Public Library uh, next Friday and it'll be on for nine months. Uh, so we'll have a website, but we'll not be able to actually show you the whole interactive version on the website because not fast enough. So here we try to do yet another kind of microscopic zoom, right? So we said, let's take the whole New York City. Let's take a Broadway, which is one of the longest streets, which goes through all of New York, 13 miles, 31 kilometers. So we defined a kind of spine, which goes from a Broadway, exactly 100 meters wide, so imagine you take a body and you only leave, you know, the kind of spine. And then we limited all the data to inside the spine. So we're using uh, 650,000 Instagram photos, which all, every single photo which we shared along Broadway in the last six months, uh, every single tweeted image, uh, millions of Foursquare check-ins, all the New York City taxi data from last year. And actually it turns out that the social media data is very reliable because it's produced by companies. What's unreliable is, is government data. So the economic data, like all the income stuff from your Bureau of Census, it's complete. It's really bad. And I think all the economists know that. All the people who write about social equality know that, but nobody like. And then, of course, you have right, the guy who says, let's look at IRS data, and he becomes famous, right? Because you know, he writes a book called Capital. So it's actually amazing, right? So it actually turns out that microscopic data about people from the last six years is really good. What we actually don't know about like, income and wealth you know, and demographics, actually, it's, this is really bad data. Um, but again, uh, just to finish my remarks, I mean, we will have like, analysis and correlations and all this other good 20th century stuff, if you believe in correlations. You know. uh, but ultimately, the goal is to create an expressive a kind of uh, information experience where people can themselves navigate through this wealth of information images and explore the patterns but also explore this a particular type of city portrait, right? A city portrait which is made from millions of data points, but not only data points, but also millions of images. So I'll just kind of play this. This is not the final version. We're still working on this. You can see we're exchanging, right, all these discussions on Basecamp, like normal designers. Uh, and by the way, I just want to say, I, mean, I know you guys all will pay the MIT faculty and students. In case somebody wants to make a quick buck, so we're using 60,000 Instagram photos in installation. Installation is supposed to be ready on Tuesday because we have like a journalist and donors preview. And just today I get email from curators. I can show you my Gmail, which says, Lev, we started looking at installations and we find lots of like kind of sexist and uh, 
kind of really bad images, can you remove them? Between now and Tuesday, 60,000. I said, yes, my career will be lying. I promise how to do it. So now I'm like, remaining to my array, do you have time this weekend? Can we go for 60,000 images? And of course, if you remove it all, then, you know, when every part of New York, when New York is going to be look even more sanitized, right? So you'll get this Bloomberg Plus version of New York. So that's, of course, very interesting questions you get with social media, right? If you remove it, it's going to be like, yes, yes, yes. In reality, it's actually very dirty, you know, especially in some parts of Broadway. Anyway, so I'll just play this for you, and I think that's the end, right? That's the end. Uh, so when you represent, you know, so you remember Stendhal, 19th century writer, who wrote a novel should be uh, a mirror which stands on a dirty, on a dirty road. Well, if you now suddenly want to show this mirror in a New York Public Library or MIT Museum or MoMA, how dirty can it be, right? Uh, so you get this interesting censorship. Anyway, um, so this here gives a little bit of interaction. And again, so the idea was to try to, not just to create you know, maybe a more traditional idea of city portrait made from data, but city portrait made from images. <coughs> so you have these kind of points where which represent averages of taxi, Instagram income, but more importantly, interacting with image layer so the top layer is we hacked into Google Street View. So that's all the images from, from Broadway from Google Street View, left, right, and up. Very interesting to look at the amount of sky. You can get more skies, you kind of go past Columbia. And then at the bottom you have Instagram, and you can basically navigate and zoom in and out at different scale. Thank you. That's my introduction. Okay, so uh, as you know, I'm Pak Sorrell. I'm associate professor here in comparative media studies, also in the computer science and AI lab. It was also mentioned I'm away for the year, so this year I'm a fellow at Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, but just really pleased to be on this, uh, on this esteemed panel. So we're, the, the topic that, that we were given and, and collaborated in coming up with is making computing strange and uh, what could be uh, more strange in some parts of the world than combining culture with, uh, with computing. So that's what I'll be talking about is this idea of cultural uh, computing. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about what I do here. That's imagine, I run the Imagination, Computation, and Expression Laboratory. It's a research group where we focus on developing systems for creative expression, cultural analysis, and social empowerment. And we've, we've built a whole range of, of systems. Uh, I'll just speak about uh, one of them during the later part of the talk today. One of the other things that was mentioned is the book Phantasmal Media. In a way, you could say the book is about you know, how to take subjective and uh, cultural meanings and, and understand how they're, how they're represented and implemented in computing systems in a very technical sense. You know, to say, how do algorithms and data structures implement cultural meanings? Now, for today, uh, I'll just uh, give you first just a bit of intuition about why I call the book Phantasmal Media. What is a phantasm? Why are they haunting? Maybe why they make computing strange uh, today. And particular case of phantasms of social identity in computing and what we're doing about it in the lab. So yeah, issues of culture, of course, are topics that have been uh, long studied in areas cultural studies, sociology, and more you know, studying these kind of cultural types and cultural messages that, that are out there, the ways that people begin to mitigate them. I mean, this is a venerable area of research. I mean, even thinking back to 1903 with W.E.B. Du Bois and his idea of double consciousness, right? you might see yourself differently than the way society sees you is the idea. Uh, or Irving Goffman, who talks about how you might manage the impression 
impression that others have of you in everyday life. Right? And so, so these are topics that, that have been long-studied, venerable areas. Um, uh, but the question for, for us now is to say, you know, what happens when we, get, we begin to think about these new kind of social and cultural configurations? Now, so this is this classic yeah, 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 internet cartoon uh, written about uh, you know, by Lisa Nakamura and others. On the internet, nobody knows you're a, you're a dog. You know, this is uh, a work called Becoming Dragon, in which uh, uh, artist is uh, imagining uh, uh, and reflecting upon the experience of, uh, of uh, gender reassignment uh, through the uh, 365 our uh, performance in a virtual space as a, as a dragon. And so the question is, what can we begin to say about these kind of phenomena, uh, how those phenomena play out within these environments? And of course, people have begun, begun to talk about this. So Lisa Nakamura uh, is highly critical of the idea implied in this cartoon, saying that, in fact, it's not enough that nobody knows who you really are. Rather, those, those kind of social issues persist in online in environments. You know, for example, she talks about uh, you know, say people that are not of Asian background playing as samurais and geisha, playing these stereotypical types within virtual worlds rather than, than actually begin, beginning to understand the, those types. Uh, Justine Cassell, Henry Jenkins, David Leonard, Anna Aver Everett, you know, many people you know, writing about issues of uh, gender representation, ethnic representation in virtual spaces. But another question is, uh, you know, I think beyond uh, these is, the idea of how do data structures and algorithms implement both these long existing and newly emergent cultural phenomena. You know, so the idea is that there are new, new questions that have emerged that are specific to computational media that, that we didn't see within uh, the work of Du Bois, you know, Goffman, et cetera. For example, uh, so this, this, this is what was brought to my attention by, by one of the students in the lab. So this is uh, a site uh, that scrapes your data. So you know, it's mining your data from uh, uh, Facebook and putting you into categories you didn't necessarily know or want to be a member of. You know, so for example, who wants to get fired, who's hung over, et cetera. And this is just based upon a new configuration of data that you actually have out there in the wild. So it's a kind of new phenomenon that, that, that has emerged. This is another interesting example because you have here on uh, your right an image, which is a default image uh, of this brown-skinned character within Second Life. Uh, and uh, the other image here is one where somebody has written a new reflectance model, a new light reflectance model. So they had to actually go in and change the algorithm uh, in order to get what they thought was a more kind of equitable representation. So I, th I think you can see a striking difference between the two uh, images. And so the idea is that encoded within, within the algorithm uh, is a kind of you know, optimized aesthetic for a particular kind of uh, a particular kind of image and so the sort of thing that I do in my research then uh, is uh, you could call it, call it cultural computing so that's uh, research to enable us to better understand cultural phenomena such as these at the code level and also building computational models and systems to analyze and simulate cultural phenomena so you could think about it as building a bridge between cultural meaning such as uh, double consciousness, impression management, stereotyping, et cetera, and computational media, in particular the algorithms and data structures underlying software such as social network profiles, e-commerce accounts, avatars, and more. Uh, but you might ask, why do I use this idea of the, of the phantasm in order to, to get at, the, at, this, uh, at this issue? Uh, and so first, I just want to give you a, a sense or intuition of what I mean by phantasm by starting off with a quite difficult question, which is, uh, what does this represent? 
So it's even more difficult than I thought. But <laughs> does, does anybody have any ideas? <laughs> yes. Uh, right, yeah, so it's a very specific answer there. Uh, and you know, a lot of people will answer either the woman's room uh, or they'll answer something like woman you know, in general, uh, right? Uh, but you can ask, you know, why was this designed in that particular sort of way? And the reason is because, of course, it takes advantage of worldview, uh, right? It's taking advantage. You know, so the idea is that you could look at this image, and even if you don't think that women do or should wear clothes such as this, it could be a person in a cape, could be a person wearing an apron. Yeah, there are a number of different things that it could be. Right, people are still recruiting from this general worldview, uh, you know, this idea women wear dresses, integrating it with that mental sensory image at hand, and immediately, without deliberation, understanding what that image uh, means. But interestingly, um, yeah, here's another image, which means the exact same thing, uh, approximately, which is, was uh, developed for use in the Indian Institute of Technology. Here's another image used for much the same purpose that is used in Oman. And the idea is that... Yeah, uh, 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 you know, that each of these is a phantasm in the sense that it, that it hides worldview uh, within it. But when you begin to look at them from multiple worldviews, you begin to reveal these phantasms because after we've seen each of these, some of the cultural assumptions in, in, in the one that we saw initially are revealed. You know, so this is in dialogue with work in semiotics, you know, signs, you know, myths, uh, etc. But there are some computationally, cognitively specific aspects of the, this uh, uh, theory. And you don't have to remember all of the nomenclature here, but suffice it to say that these images work in systems and they're a kind of distributed cognition process. So I'll explain a bit of what I mean by that with another somewhat difficult question, which is, if I were to ask you which of these images has greater area, how would you answer that question? Uh, right, that's, that's a... Great idea. You know, some people suggest the elementary algebra equation to, to solve it. That's another way to do it. I get about 50-50 in terms of responses. Uh, but if I were to ask you the same question and they started off like this, then it would be a much easier answer there. And the idea is that you know, this idea of Ed Hutchins and others of a material anchor, we offload our cognition onto the image. It's its own representation. We don't need to consciously think and figure this out. We can look at it and immediately see which one is a greater area. Right? So that's, that's what I mean by a kind of distributed cognition process. Without conscious deliberation, we instantly understand the meaning. And the contention is that the same sort of process happens in an image like this or even a dynamic kind of animated image such as we might see in, in a GUI or like this, right? Or going further, an image such as this, right? So we have the same sort of cognitive phenomenon of understanding and receiving and interpreting these phantasms when we encounter these kind of digital forms and begin to make, make use of them. At the same time, a number of phenomena that, that, uh, that as I mentioned, pre-exist of these digital forms still persist. So this is a classic Clark study, uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, in which African-American children are asked to choose which baby doll do you prefer, which one looks nice, which one looks like you. Uh, you can see which one was uh, chosen with a higher percentage here. And the purpose of bringing this up here isn't just to recap this uh, venerable study, but rather, but rather to say that these phenomena persist but how might we begin to describe these phenomena in a way useful for analyzing computing systems? Uh, so to analyze computing systems, you have to, of course, look at things in a much more structured uh, way when you begin to look at how data, stru data structures and types actually represent this kind of concept. You know, so that just means types or sorts of elements. 
some that represent people, parts of people, attributes of people, and so forth. Uh, and, and so this is a particular kind of worldview, like we saw in, in the, uh, the woman sign uh, 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 example, but just broken down in a semi-structured way. Someone might recruit uh, some aspects of that, uh, that, that worldview or implement some aspects of that worldview within a data structure. Uh, and in the case of these uh, uh, children, then they're just immediately understanding this doll, say, as uh, looking nice uh, by recruiting this information. The only thing I've done here is just describe it in a semi-structured way that this, uh, that this kind of data is often described in uh, data structures for computer games, social networking profiles, and so forth. So uh, to summarize the definition of phantasm here, you know, it, just, it, it's a, uh, it provides a way of describing conceptual blends of imagery, you know, this can be dynamic imagery, with concepts and particular worldviews in a way that's useful for analyzing computing systems. Uh, and the idea in particular emphasizes the role of worldview and semi-visible values in culture. It's defined in cognitive science terms, and by that I don't mean just cognition in the head, but I mean uh, embodied cognition, you know, the way that we think in terms of bod bodily metaphors, distributed cognition, and particular social cultural settings. And uh, perhaps most importantly for today, can be described formally or semi-formally to, to analyze and design computing systems. And so the, although phantasms are, are, are as broad as concepts or worldview, I want to focus on a particular type of phantasm, that of social identity, which has been a focus of some of my research during the last uh, four years. So I'll, be, I'll begin, you know, this is an example that, that, that I like to show, but there have been some updates uh, in, in it recently. Uh, so this is from the game Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. Here are a couple of types of characters that are within the game. Uh, and, uh, and so this is a Nord, the ostensibly Norwegian type of character. This is a Red Guard, the ostensibly uh, African or African-American character within the game. You have, you know, say in the manuals, you have these characters, say a Red Guard being described in essentialist stereotypes of the black athlete. You know, for example, the most naturally talented warriors in Tamriel. They're physically blessed with hardy constitutions and quickness of foot which in fact translates into running and jumping ability bonuses within the game, but you can run and jump better, and then as you do that more, then you get better at those particular abilities. Similarly for, 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 for uh, Nords. Yeah. And again, this is, this is implemented uh, on the back end. It's nothing about the visuals of, of the characters. Uh, actually, another game in the series came out later called Skyrim. This was a game that, uh, uh, to give, to give a, a, a sense of the scale of impact, you know, so... Uh, Star Wars on the best weekend sold set, made seven million dollars. Adjusted for infl inflation, that's twenty-seven point two million dollars now. Well, Skyrim's uh, first day, it made two hundred and seventeen million dollars. <laughs> adjusted for inflation from from, from, from just recently. Yeah, so so yeah, that, that's just to say the, the impact and uh, at least just in terms of sales. The question is, with a sequel, was there any change to this kind of issue of essentializing? Has anybody here played Skyrim? Uh, so, it, and if you haven't seen me give this, this part of the talk before, do you have a sense of how this changed within, within uh, Skyrim? Did it get any better in the situation for representing Red Guards, for example? Uh, well, I, I can, I can uh, show you what the new one, this is a default, uh, a default Red Guard in Skyrim, replacing the one that you ju just saw. Uh, so... Uh, I, I won't comment much upon, uh, upon this one, but suffice to say that I've been writing about this for a, a, a while, but uh, the, the issue is, is that I don't think this is actually any better or worse than, than the previous one. You know, so whereas 
Yeah, this is just a change to the front end. This is a change to the graphical representation of the, of the character, where I'm more interested in the back end, the algorithmic and data structural uh, rep representation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, that, that's to say that at this level, where, where if you happen to be the ostensibly French Breton, you're going to be by default 20 points more intelligent than your Norwegian counterpart. That's the issue that I'm talking about. Or furthermore, examples I give, such as in Neverwinter Nights, where you have five genders represented in the data structure. You know, I, I sometimes ask the rhetorical question, how many do you think there are? Well, there are five, male, female, both other and none, but male, both other and none, all have male body types by default. <laughs> right, so 80% of the five are male. Uh, here, here's another example uh, that, that was discussed by Watkins and Everett in the game uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, in which you have these characters uh, sort of loiter, loitering or walking around. Why, why is that the case? Or why is that an aesthetic uh, decision? Well, actually, it's not just an aesthetic decision. It's a, it's a game mechanical decision, because what you can do is uh, target a game member to recruit them to your group. So they have to have people that are visible within the space that you can then recruit to join you. So there's a kind of game mechanical or algorithmic reason. But in fact, the, the end result is that you have these uh, black bodies just loitering throughout the city, doing nothing except for waiting for you to come up and recruit them for gangland activity. <laughs> right. Yes. So in this, to give a further sense of, of, of the scope of the problem, you, know, you don't have to you know, look at all of these stats, but just a couple of the stats here. Uh, you know, so more than 90% of black women characters functioning as props, bystanders, or victims. And again, we've seen that some of this is, is happening al algorithmically, and, and, and so on. Uh, right, and, and of course, it's no... Uh, it's no consolation to look at the stats for other women either, right? right. It's quite harrowing regardless. And so what I want to conclude with is just a little bit of what we're trying to do about this, this, this kind of situation. I should mention further that, you know, that, uh, that if you think, well, why is this important? Isn't this, this ga just games? Uh, well, researchers such as Jeremy Balenson at, at Stanford, for example, have shown that people actually change their real-world behavior based upon the kind of avatars they play. If you play an attractive avatar, you, uh, according to your own definition, you might change your interpersonal distance with others in, in the real world. And so to conclude, I'll say just a bit about what we're trying to do about it. Yeah, so we're trying to build systems that have more expressive nuance for conveying some of these social identity phenomena. Uh, yeah, so just to give one example, imagine you begin a game and you're playing as a knight. You decide to then uh, uh, dabble a bit in, in, in magic. Magic isn't for you, and so you decide to go back to knighthood and fight with weapons. Uh, and then that's lost its luster, so you decide to go, as they say, full mage. Uh, now, <laughs> now uh, uh, is it, at Stanford, that didn't get a lot of laughs. Somehow, here, here, here it does. Uh, uh, but you can imagine something else, such as listening to Pandora, and you listen to, uh, to punk rock music, begin dabbling in jazz a bit, then we go back to punk rock, and, and then go full jazz. Right? So it's the same structure. And so what we're trying to do is model category gradients, so moving uh, from the center to the margins of categories, having multiple memberships in categories, and the dynamics of how you change your social categories over time, which is something that most uh, com computer games and social networking profiles don't, in fact, explicitly do. So. And so we, we created a game scenario using a platform of our own design called Chimeria, in, in which we have two different types. This is just for illustrative purposes. You could have any number of different social categories, but we chose one, Sylvans, which are sort of elf-like. They like poetry and fine clothes. 
brushwoods like uh, good heart, you know, hearth tails and, and earthy clothing. This could have been any, again, the front end representation could have been anything. The back end representation is what matters. We separate out the abstract category. So you could say you have one group that's privileged, another one that's oppressed. You could instantiate that with either. So you could have any social configuration and then instantiate that with, with any different one. And uh, you know, it's for the purpose of, and the game scenario is one in which you're trying to get into a castle keep by convincing the person who's from the other group to let you in, that you're somehow like them. And so I'll show you just what that looks like here. Okay, so the Sylvans and Brushwood have been at war for ages. The Sylvan, known as the tall people at average, are sometimes judged from far to be lovers of finery and elaborate poetry. The Brushwoods, known as the small people on average, are judged to be fond of earthy homespun fabrics and good hearth tales. You're from the Sylvan tribe, so remember that. And you stand before the gate of a keep, and you need to enter the need is dire, and you see a Brushwood guard. So the guard looks preoccupied, and he's looking away from you. So what do you do? Do you dust off your boots? Do you adjust your clothes and your gilded mirror? Do you untuck your tunic, or do you hide your fine jewelry? so you can hide your, your jewelry. And he likes that. Uh, <laughs> and you think to yourself, though, because you have internal monologue here, I'm trying to fit in with these brushwood. The guard has a wary expression. We don't see many of your t well, new folk around here. It seems he's about to say we don't see many Sylvan around here. So what do you say? Tis not far from home. Oh, yes, good man. Uh, this is a strange land to me. New I'm from just around the way, or I'm from a little ways off indeed. So any preference here? Okay. Oh, but he doesn't like that. <laughs> doesn't seem like he wants you in. The guard looks expectantly at you. Do you speak in your own language to him? Good day, some weather we're having. Or, I hope you are faring well. A star shines upon the hour of our meeting. <laughs> Let's choose that. But he doesn't, doesn't, doesn't like it. You're being yourself a true Sylvan. He looks curious. Do you speak in your own language? Uh, say hello, greetings, brother, or good day, Brushwood. So, yes, somebody said this. He likes this. You're hoping to get in. And he says, like, you can come in, I guess. And somehow you talked your way in. And, and, and so I'll just, you know, just mention uh, just that you know, there is a narrative structure behind this. So we have different clause types, orientation clauses. We're doing constant tests to see what category you're a member of and also the trajectory of your categories over time in order to choose these, 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 these outcomes. And so what we're actually doing is looking at, within all of these different features, you know, the change of these features over time and beginning to do some social modeling. So imagine Chimeria not as something like a graphics engine, like the Unreal Engine. It's a kind of social identity modeling engine that you could then use in other systems. And so, for example, if you're in, uh, monotonically increasing your membership in their category, that's a way to represent passing, kind of social passing as a category uh, that you see is different than yours. What we had in our example was fluctuating. We went back and forth uh, here. That's why you don't know how you really got in there. Uh, right, or you could have not gotten in, and so forth. And so we're actually able to implement all of these kind of impression management strategies using this tracking function and your category membership at, at different times and have different kind of endings. So you could say, say be that yourself the entire time, but then uh, uh, get in or not get in. You could think to uh, uh, yeah. 
uh, or fake, like you're, you're a member of that category, be accepted. Thankfully, I was able to convince the guard to let me in. You could have gotten a different theme, denial of self. Well, I had to pretend to be something I'm not. You know? yeah, so you have these two different kind of ways uh, of, of both, both, these two different themes for both getting in. We actually implemented this also. Uh, you know, we implemented a social networking site with a musical category taste based on your preferences. They change over time and conversations unfold. I won't demo that, uh, that today. But suffice it to say that there's a lot of expressive possibility that comes up for critical social commentary using this kind of system, I think, compared to, to a lot of traditional games. So to conclude, remember me. Well, these types of phantasms often remain implicit and invisible to users and are implemented in back-end uh, data structures and, and algorithms uh, su such as this. Whereas these types of phantasms are computationally modeled and explicitly designed for studying and conveying cultural meanings in digital media. So to conclude, uh, my contention is that the phantasmal media approach enables us to better understand and convey cultural meanings implemented via algorithms and data structures in, in computational media. Thank you. So, Fox, Lev, thank you both very much. Um, uh, there's, I, I think there's, there's a lot of things to talk about. And I want to actually start not so much with a, with a question related to some of the themes, uh, content of our investigations, but, um, uh, but with a question about uh, how, we, how we conduct this type of work of uh, software development, of actually making systems um, uh, like uh, the ones that both of you showed. Um, and uh, for my own sake, I'll mention that um, I have a lab here, the Trope Tank, where we also do software development of various sorts. Um, it's a physical space that has a lot of um, material computing resources from recent years. Um, but we also work in contemporary uh, digital media systems. That's uh, Chow Yun-Fat, our patron saint. Um, and, um, uh, and we collaborate uh, remotely as well as locally with people to do projects like TinPrint or the Rendering Project, which um, is uh, uh, now in preparation to be published in the next few days. Um, uh, the process of doing this type of software development work and, uh, and working uh, analytically uh, using software, uh, developing new types of systems to model um, conceptual blends and uh, cultural phantasms is um, uh, one that I think is related to you know, these sorts of things that we're brandishing earlier, the books that, uh, that we create and that um, are one way that we do humanistic inquiry and project ideas um, and enter into conversations. But they're also different in certain other ways. So I wanted to ask if you'd each say something about um, what it means to uh, not only produce uh, theories, books, but also to uh, develop software um, as part of your investigations. I know that, I mean, Lev mentioned that sometimes it involves you know, looking through 60,000 images to find uh, ones that are sexist and can be removed. Um, that's, um, that's not my idea of creative software development. So, <laughs> it's like opposite, right? Yeah. Uh, but I would say, but you know, it's taking, 60, taking 60 million images and sorting them by file size, mm -hmm. realizing that you can find amazing collection of minimalist incidental art on Instagram, that's, that's both example of software, but it's also example of Australia, right? But mm -hmm. we'll get into it. So when you say like you want very concrete answer about software development or okay yeah uh, I mean I, the, the, there are obviously many things that could be said okay. Okay. but one issue right. is you know how does it how does it work alongside these more familiar ways yeah. of uh, c conducting scholarship of working in the humanities yeah. um, 
no one was startled uh, to see books. Sure. Uh, but perhaps the idea that we're developing uh, these sorts of systems that you told us okay. about, um, uh, how is that done? Uh, how does yeah. that, how does that, how does that yeah. come together? Well, maybe tell you a few like practical kind of like, real-life anecdotes, right? Um, okay, so I had a kind of art and design background when I went and got a PhD in visual culture. And when I was, um, after you know, my first tenure track job, uh, I was hired at the University of California, San Diego, uh, by the art department to help. It was like 96, very early, right? When the media was young. Um, to help, you know, develop uh, kind of programs in digital art. So, so I had a PhD. I was hired as an artist, which was great. They gave me a huge artist studio because people with PhDs got tiny offices. But then they said, we're only going to give you credit for books. So how does this work? I was hired as an artist. I was only teaching art classes, you know, studio classes. And yet, I was only credited for articles and books. So eventually, I had to make a maneuver, right? I did write this book, you know, which is unique mention. And I got tenure. And then for my, when it was time for me to become a full professor, on purpose, I didn't finish my next book, but I finished a big art project. So I kind of forced them to actually give me credit for art projects, right? So it was this kind of game, but I was very lucky because I was in an art department with a bunch of artists who basically like, you know, you can do whatever you want, right? If I was in the humanities or social science department, I think it would be more difficult. But then things really got strange because they understood that Lev writes books, that's okay. Lev makes art, that's okay. But what he's doing now, he's playing with big data, he's writing software, that was too much. Um, so I had to, you know, I said, well, maybe I should time for me to, you know, move to East Coast. And uh, I go to the East Coast, and, and I'm offered the job at the CUNY Graduate Center as professor of computer science. So I'm now teaching, I'm fucking teaching now, PhD students in computer science, data science. Five years ago, I didn't even know how to open Excel. <laughs> and now like, I hack myself, yeah? Uh, so I hacked my way, and I kind of learned R, you know, and like this is kind of what I think I do when I take train to MIT, you know, play with R, you know, visualize stuff. Uh, but, uh, but, but what I want to say is one more thing, right? Uh, so, of course, you know, in my work, I was always interested to both maybe create some expressive, expressive, you know, expressive ways to represent or to do something by digital media and to also to understand this. Right? So it was fine, but when in 2005 I realized the new stage of digital media which is coming after previous stages like interactivity, generation, networks, the new stage which is coming is you know, huge social, huge big data. And of course, what we now think is big data is like nothing, right? Think about you know, when all these thermostats and toilets will get online and you can do like cultural life of a toilet or thermostat, right? You know, like nest studies, right? Uh, it's coming. <laughs> Uh, so it's nothing yet, right? I mean, whatever billions of images. So I said, okay, now if I actually want to say something intelligent about the way software is now creating knowledge in our society, the way, our, the way we now moved into what I would call software epistemology, right? Where's machine learning and data mining and you know, support vector machines and all this uh, bunch of methods I actually use to generate knowledge in our society, I actually have to become expert in this. So I had to learn computer science, and then I learned a little bit, and I said, now I can't learn on my own anymore, so I've become a professor, distinguished professor in computer science, so I can learn more. So I basically had to spend seven years learning computer science, you know, and then I became a computer science professor. So now I can actually say something about digital media and the age of big data, right? So that's a sacrifice. 
Uh, but the good thing is now I have a job in New York. I can visit you guys more often. I can make art projects, and I can also write books about this new thing, right? Um, but uh, it's kind of very hard to learn things, right, when you like already have a job and mostly people want you to write recommendation letters, right? And you're like, trying to hack yourself into R. So I was trying to make how I was trying to figure out how to make these labels bigger to show you, but I just can't. So, yeah. So I mean, the way to do computational work in the humanities, like, yeah, one one technique is to become a distinguished professor of computer science, right? So, <laughs> so, so we'll keep that in mind and let's see what Fox has to say. Uh, sure. So, so I can tell you a little bit, a little bit about it, and also how it's developed over time, because you know, so you know, my trajectory you know, was, you know, I was, you know, on, you know, I made sure to to seek solid disciplinary grounding on multiple sides. So that means a double degree as an you know, undergrad, you know, that's art, but then also in logic and computing and, and uh, computer science. Uh, and uh, you know, But then you know, later on, as I was doing a PhD in uh, computer science, th- th- then you know, a lot of it was like this. That's just um, you know, writing you know, large pieces of, uh, of software you know, on, on my own or, with, or maybe with a very small... Uh, collaboration, which was usually just me getting somebody else to use the system and teaching them how to use the, the, the system, you know, so that that was a you know, the, the kind of uh, the, the kind of early phase. But I did begin to think about how others might might use it, you know. So, for example, and what this was the early attempt though was okay. Well, let me make an easy input format, but it still looks something like this, which is uh, you know, Lisp code. You know, so, you know, but the, the idea was then to say, uh, well, you know, how can I make this work more accessible for others, and especially as uh, you know, when, I, when I went to my first tenure track position, how to get other people involved since I knew I would have students that were both computer scientists as well as digital media students. And so you know, one of the things that we began to do was then you know, I thought well, building platforms is, is uh, a, great, a great way. Right? That's what I did, did during the, the, that program, building platforms for creating interactive narrative systems, interactive multimedia narratives. We could, you know, could create systems that change emotional tone or metaphor on the fly, but fix the way that, that, that it looks, say, visually, uh, you know, or fix the plot. Um, and so then the next step was to say we could have people get involved in other projects that are coming from computer science at, uh, you know, that like to build platforms you know, sometimes. We have people that come in that like to use the platforms. Anybody could then use it to express themselves. You know, somebody could be an artist at the same time, as, you know, regardless of which disciplinary program they come in. So the next step was then saying using something like a markup language, like XML. You could have another level of authorship. Somebody could come in, use the markup language. But there's still a barrier of entry with, with, uh, with, with this, with this sort this sort of thing. Um, and so we began to do uh, work. So as we built systems like the Chimera platform, uh, one is you have both, uh, you have some, uh, yeah, yeah, some you know, it's uh, data-driven, so you can bring in data from other sites, such as in the, in the music uh, version of it. You can bring in information from uh, clips from YouTube, from Facebook. You can categorize music from Roby Coral Music Guide that says, this band is so mysterious and gloomy, and bring in those terms. And so it's a way that you can bring in data that comes outside of you. You don't have to always uh, program it. But the other thing we've been doing recently is also building interfaces, so other people at a different level of authorship can then come in, use a graphical user interface, you build narratives with the system. And so there are a lot of different kind of entry points. I actually think of it as about four different stages of authorship. One is just writing computer code. The next one is using kind of markup languages you know, with a system. You have another language, which is as a user, working with an interactive system that can then create a particular outcome, like a poem or an experience. And the other level is performing it. You know, like I did the game here, but some of the systems are actually more performative that are used. You know, we've done work with, with 
uh, free jazz musicians, you know, improvising with us, playing the system like an instrument, seeing what responds. And that's another level of authorship. You know? So I think actually there are a lot of different ways to become you know, involved in the software production you know, uh, process, you know, going down from the code level up through the performative level. Maybe I can just add one meta point. So I was thinking, like, as you know, there are lots of parallels between us. Uh, and I thought, well, if actually, if you look at like what I'm showing, what he's showing, you can get some meta pattern. What does it mean to write code and kind of navigate between humanities and computer science and art? So I'm using R, which is basically like arcane system you know, from early 70s, right? S, command line. He's using Lisp, which is a more arcane language, right, from like the 60s. So basically, right, if you if you want to become like successful person in intersection with with field, use something very arcane with command line. You don't have to write programs. Just using command line from from some software from 1972 does the job, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. See, I, I should say that you know, a lot of the back end of the systems we use a lot of software. You know, I, I personally enjoy using Lisp, but on top yeah, of that, absolutely. we use you know, JavaScript, uh, HTML5, know. You know, Flash. You know, it, you know, we, we use a lot of systems on top. Sure. Yeah. So I was just going to mention some about the project that uh, Fox and I are working on, Slant, uh, with uh, collaborators here at MIT and in Mexico City, and uh, and to also talk a, a little bit about how people have gotten involved in that project and participated. I mean, in some cases, with uh, with Eric, Eric Staten, he came to MIT with programming expertise and was able to participate throughout with uh, and also collaborate with Ivan Guerrero, a grad uh, student in Mexico City, on a lot of aspects of the project. But, uh, but also that, for instance, you know, one of the things we, uh, we did was to build a unit sensitive to um, genre. This is uh, uh, basically a, uh, a Blackboard-based system where these uh, different units um, can uh, contribute different things to a story in progress. And after a certain point, it's realized by a natural language generation pipeline using some of uh, Fox's GRIO concepts uh, to do conceptual blending at, at, at the first stage. Um, now, uh, so without getting into the details of how this works, I'll just mention that you know we we're trying to model uh, different sorts of uh, very small scale uh, types of genres in which writing or stories can take place. Uh, some of them would be um, uh, diary entries. Some of them would be confessions to a priest. Some of them would be um, uh, mixed up uh, remembrances or uh, um, or prophecies or things like this. So we have these different types of uh, systems for this. And Andrew Campana, who uh, worked with us. You know, ended up without having a programming background, without having used Python before, um, so, you know, just sort of figuring out in the process of doing this um, enough to develop uh, these uh, um, these systems uh, and bring his uh, existing knowledge of genre together with programming to uh, to put this part of the system together. Um, it, it's nice to be able to develop you know a large number of like interfaces and APIs that can allow people using XML or other means to do things. But one of the problems with that is that it also slows down the development process. I think like you actually have to spend more time building out all these interfaces and maybe codifying the way things works before you know how exactly they should work. Um, so um, so I think there's you know different possibilities for flexible development and people who are willing to engage um, with programming, whether it's a uh, through um, obscure systems like Lisp and R, or you know, our beautiful programming language like Python, um, <laughs> you know, like that, that still you know can can provide uh, some good ways to work a little bit more flexibly and, and rapidly. I think. So, um, well, if someone wants to refute me, I'll, I'll, I'll let them. But uh, but we also can move on, and yes. I have a bunch of other questions. Um, uh, one of them. Um, 
uh, really has to do with uh, uh, an issue of, you know, we think about media literacy, we, the, the term computer literacy was something when I was in middle school was very popular. Um, but that question of what it is that we need to know about computational media, digital media, about the t- types of systems that we encounter. I mean, not, not from the standpoint of what, what are advanced topics for graduate students who are grappling with this, but how is it that people in our society really um, um, should be coming to understand uh, the pervasive computing environment and its ability to mediate communication and art? Um, how, you know, what, what do people need to know to do that? Fox, do you have some, some thoughts you'd like to chime in? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So, uh, you know, well, I think, I think one is there are a lot of different notions of literacy in this area. So as Nick mm-hmm. mentioned, going back to computer literacy, that, that's more operational knowledge. Uh, you know, Perlis discussed uh, computational you know, you know, literacy. Mm-hmm. That, that's more the kind of literacy of, of programming languages. And so you know, how elegantly written is your, is your program? Is it concise and this sort of thing? But there's also you know, people like you know, Bogost and Matias and, and, and others who talk about procedural literacy. And that's more you know, the, the kind of uh, procedural step and being able to think in a kind of systematic way that's useful for programming. So those are all slightly different. You know, I also like work that comes in from the learning sciences and critical literacy. And so that's where you look at people's indigenous literacies. That might be in, in a community. People have the ability, you know, you know, maybe people know how to, you know, that people like to you know, build bicycles or youth, you know, understand you know, the aesthetics of the selfie and, 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 and this, this sort of thing. And, and so how can you begin to see the bridges between those? And so one of the sort of things I write about in Phantasmal Media is you know, understanding, for example, how a recommender system might work to, convey, to create consensus. You know, so if you understand, you don't have to understand all of the technical details, but if you understand at a high level the way that, uh, that an algorithm uh, functions or the way that these kind of systems function, you understand that there are, for example, network neighborhoods that, that then you're clustered with other users and, and you then beca- get recommended things that other people in your network neighborhood like and you're more likely to buy those things that are showing up uh, on, uh, on your Amazon page or your, other, your favorite e-commerce page. Uh, and, and then you have a sense of building consensus. When you begin to actually read the technical papers, they're actually users that are called gray sheep and black sheep. That's a technical term in these papers for people who you can't you know, necessarily you know, predict or you know, somehow pathological from the point of view of these algorithms. So the, the, the point is that you, know, you have these social effects. You know, they're building consensus, building a kind of, you know, a kind of consumerist worldview and so forth. And it's not just to you know, wholeheartedly you know, criticize you know, that, but just understand that the algorithm is related to consumption. The algorithm is related to how we see ourselves. And if you have just a bit of understanding of algorithmic thinking, then you can begin to understand the relationship between that and culture. So I think that this kind of procedural literacy is about the middle ground, where you can begin to think about these relationships, but also understanding that it dovetails with a kind of critical literacies perspective, which is what are people doing naturally with these systems, and then really reinforcing the relationship between those. So I have actually many things to say on this topic, so I'll try to limit it to 1.7 things, maybe. Um, so well, my lab, which I started in 2007, uh, it's actually called Software Studies. And I think now, I basically, I think this idea is kind of more, more obvious. But in 2005, 2006, it wasn't really obvious that uh, social scientists, humanists, humanists, cultural critics should also pay attention to software as a kind of engine of uh, data and information society. I mean, now I think we have many books in our own software study series, you know, other books. I mean, I mean, people who publish MIT Press, but not in our series like Fox. So I think this idea is now becoming kind of more obvious, but it wasn't obvious eight years ago. And one of the big questions which uh, we kind of asked 
So in a world where decision-making, memory management, knowledge production, uh, cultural recommendations, cultural consumptions uh, are uh, governed by software systems, which involve you know, data mining, machine learning, databases, client service systems, and so on, how can general public, people who don't have PhD in computer sciences, have intelligent conversation about the systems, right? You know, so in the last few years, the word algorithm is becoming more and more frequently used in news. But, you know, and we like to talk about algorithmic biases, you know, Google or page, you know, page rank bias. But how can you talk about the systems which are very complex for two reasons? First of all, they're complex because, as you probably know, right, at MIT, you know that Google uses over 200, I think, different uh, kind of features, signals, uh, and actually, I think dozens, of not hundreds, different algorithms to figure out results for a search. So page rank is just one of dozens of them. So you go to Wikipedia and you start reading a wonderful page about page rank. And first, it looks very simple. And then it gets more and more complicated. And then it gets more and more complicated. I mean, how many journalists can read this? Right? So partly, I think this is really one of the biggest challenges, I think, for our time. Right? So our world runs the systems which very few people understand, right? Our world is a black box, you know? With engine in the car, with mechanical world, with industrial society, you know, it's kind of simple, right? You know, so, you know, there's a wheel, you know, wheel rotates, you put more gas, it rotates faster. With software, it's black boxes. So first of all, they're black boxes because, you know, Gmail is like 50 million lines of code, right? Or, you know, OS 8, like 80 million lines of code. So the systems, you know, just have millions of lines of code follow formulas. So that's one difficulty. The second difficulty, as you probably know at a place like MIT, right, most decisions in our world, which are done by software, use machine learning, and a big proportion of machine learning is black boxes, right? So you build a system, you give it some inputs, it gives you some outputs, you don't know why, right? So in the 80s and 90s, people still use expert systems, right? And people use other kinds of software systems where it was actually possible to understand how computer makes decisions. But then the machine learning, right, turned out to be more efficient, and it turns out that it's much more efficient to build kind of machine learning, you know, neural networks, and other types of systems, which do a job done, but they don't know how. So now I start thinking about some very radical ideas, which may sound crazy, but just talk about, let's think about them for a second. I'm about to finish. So is it more important for our society to be fully efficient so you get best recommendation on Netflix? and the bank refuses the loans to just the right people, where we have no idea how decisions are being made, or shall the government limit the complexity of software, saying you're not, you're not allowed to use black box machine learning. You're only allowed to use expert systems so we can actually figure out how decisions are being made. I mean, it sounds very crazy, but I think this is the kind of decisions our society is going to face in the next you know, dozens of years, as you know, even to open a toilet would require machine learning, right? And when you don't know why it doesn't open. Right? So I think with software literacy, it's not just about you know, learning to code or understanding you know, database system. It's the fact that our society is more and more running with these black boxes, which even people who code them don't understand, and which means that they work until we don't, and we have no way of discussing them. And this is, I think, a very, very big problem we have to address. So it's like maybe yeah. not software literacy, it's a software, it's not a transparency, because if I make the system open code, it's still 80 millions of lines of code. So that's not going to help you. It's comprehensibility. You guys are better at this, right? Uh, find, if help me find the term. 
but I think the problem is very big. And of course, learning to program is already something, right? But it's just like one step, you know? Uh, because if you can write like little five-line program in Python, it's no good to help you to understand 200 programs which have hundred millions of lines of code which run inside Amazon which generate recommendations. So there's like a big, big gap between learning little to, how to write a little five-line program and actually understanding how these industrial systems work. So I, I want to I leave the, some time for discussion with the audience and for questions um, there. But uh, I, there is one more thing I'll ask, uh, at least briefly, because I, I want to give you each an opportunity to bring to our attention um, some domains or communities where uh, there's some interesting types of making strange, some interesting types yes. of defamiliarization and work I'm, I'm uh, that's I'm happening. Ready, ready so, Lev, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have three or four I could mention and probably will, but I'll let you start. Okay. Yeah, so I think I was really kind of excited to uh, kind of biting my time when we will start talking about next question, which is making strange. Yeah. Uh, okay, I will, I will try to make more... I will, not go into my rant, you know. Like, but at least like MIT rants are good, right? You're supposed to rant, right? Why do I like my sick? Well, things like that, right? Anyway, just kidding. Okay, so as you guys know very well, right, one of the, where basically 20th century art uses two algorithms mostly. One is montage, like taking things which are unrelated, making them related, and then letting your brain figure out what's going on. And the second is defamiliarization, right? So if you remember the kinds of defamiliarization or ostranenia, was invented by a young Russian uh, critic, Viktor Shklovsky, around 1914, where he said that the job of art is to make our world unfamiliar, strange, to refresh our perception. Now, Shklovsky, you know, being a young, pre-revolutionary critic, said that's the job of all art. Of course, he was probably describing modern art. And even though Shklovsky was talking about literature, right? you know, I think a perfect visual example of this Ostranenia uh, photographs by people like Maholi Nash and Alexander Rochenko, 1920s, 1930s. So Rochenko was working in Russia, where a very kind of basic ostranenia, estrangement, defamiliarization technique was to not to photograph things from a normal point of view, the kind of normal, right, iPhone, uh, but maybe use iPhone stick, right? So basically photograph things from an unusual point of view, right? right? So you photograph things from unusual points of view, you can still recognize that the world is familiar, but it's also very unfamiliar, because you have a subtract structure, so you have you know, photographs from the top or from the bottom. And of course, there are millions of other techniques people use, but I think this is a very kind of easy kind of art history 101 uh, uh, little mini illustration. So when I think about uh, analyzing, visualizing big social cultural data like Instagram you know, images, or for example, impressionism, I think there are two things we can basically do, right? One is we can work on completely unfamiliar world of social media data, right? Where we actually don't know what's out there, right? So I think when we work on, you know, a Kiev project or selfies projects, you actually don't know what, you know, one million Instagram photos are going to look like. So it takes a little bit harder to do Australia because we actually basically first just want to figure out how a familiar map is going to look like. Mm. But it's still possible, right? For example, if you read, like, if you read mass media, these people are going to tell you what, what Instagram is mostly selfies, you know, food, cats. Well, maybe, uh, but not only, right? So, for example, you know, if you look at the way Instagram is used around the world, you actually find all kinds of photos. You find everything, but maybe there are more selfies, there are more cats, but you do find everything. But if you actually want to find out, you have to use computer methods. So we took 13,000 photographs, which we shared 
during six days in Kiev, and we use computer science techniques of cluster analysis to divide these photographs into 60 clusters based on similarity. Mm-hmm. So we find the clusters, which is what you expect, right? Selfies, right? You know, very, uh, the computer doesn't know anything about the content, so we have to guess why computer thinks it's one cluster, but you can have, right, big difference between background and foreground, if you're in the center. But we also find, of course, things like this, right? Non-photographic images, kind of textual communication. And also find things like this, right? So if you look at this, like there's no revolution going on, but there are these kind of landscapes, right? So simply looking at the big social media where you think it's all about X, turns out it's about everything, that's one way to do it. But it's basically, but when you actually look at familiar cultural data, then it's really all about Australia because one thing you get with visualization, right, you find with your conventional understanding of, 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 of kind of classical culture archives is usually not correct. So just to very quickly, two examples, so here we collected, uh, with my students, over 6,000 Impressionist paintings. Right? So no art historians or curator have ever looked at as many Impressionist paintings. According to best estimates, Impressionist done about 13,000 paintings and pastels. That's about, that's about half of it, about 6,000. And when you think about Impressionism, you think it's like this, right? You know? You know, la la la. You know, <laughs> kind of like kind of like, kind of Instagram porn, right? Right. You know, but in reality, you also get things like this. You get things which are very dark, very traditional, very brownie. And what you find is that what you think of as impressionism is maybe about ten percent of what impressionist painters painted. <laughs> and every time we look at a different artist, you know, Van Gogh, whatever, we find the same thing. And uh, and maybe just one last thing. So we also did this work, you know, which was kind of highlight of the first stage of our lab, where we visualized one million manga by visual similarity, right? So since at MIT, I can say that uh, I can actually name, right, uh, things of our own names, which is very refreshing. So that's actually entropy, right, which means images, you know, which consist mostly of big uh, parts with uh, the same pixel values on the bottom, right? So kind of low entropy. Right? And then as you go up, you start getting more texture, more information. Well, in Shannon's sense, of course, Shannon was wrong, but it doesn't matter. But that's another conversation. Uh, as, I, as I heard, as I learned today from talking to one of MIT Media Lab, wonderful faculty who is running, writing a book about it, and he knows what he's doing, so just wait. Uh, and then you get more texture, more 3D, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And uh, I started this project with very kind of naive art historical, well, not naive art historical kind of scholarly idea well, I'm going to find whatever styles in, in manga. I don't know anything about manga. I hate manga. So that's a perfect thing to work on because I hate it, right? I'm actually completely, I can't even finish my thing, right? I mean, I can read manga called the news, you know, like, like, you know, like, like Virgil, Virgil walks about, right? Or Mashable, but that's a different manga. Okay, so what you find out, in fact, it's a kind of wrong question, but at least from the point of view of particular variables we chose, there's not really any separation, Right? But you have this constant kind of change, continuous kind of distribution, right, from this extreme to this extreme. Of course, you actually do find styles, but then you have to look at the kind of how eyes are represented. But from this particular variable, it's a complete continuous distribution. You can say, but it's interesting. Maybe a whole cut of style, which emerges like, you know, in a kind of modern humanities, is an artifact of the fact that you always look at small data sets. So if you look at all of 20th century art, there are probably so many different variations here between surrealism, cubism, realism, but it's also going to be continuous, right? right? Right now, we just put it all into a small room in the museum called figurative art, 
And then we give like big rooms to with exceptions like cubism, surrealism, but it's wrong, right? So when you say, yeah, left, but this is very artificial, because you're basically taking things out of a context, you collected one million manga pages, you project them using continuous kind of uh, measurements, you get this big cloud. What if you look at a single manga title, you look at this, and you get something like this. So this is, sorry, this is a single manga title, less than a thousand pages, and you can see that it still varies all over the space of possibilities. So once you learn from looking at the big data, but in fact, putting culture in discrete categories can be problematic, when you say, well, how can I bring this knowledge to a normal study of small data, going back to like something which humanities colleagues can understand, and now you say, actually, you guys don't understand anything in a good way. Well, you don't tell them that because, you know, not before you get tenure. Uh, uh, because actually, even with single title, it doesn't have a style. So when you pe all these people who for 30 years are publishing articles about style of manga, they're actually kind of mistaken because even a single work doesn't have a, doesn't have a particular style. So I'm sorry, but it was, of course, I lied when I said it'll take three minutes, I'll take seven. <laughs> but the point was to say that uh, I think that when we kind of study this, this, you know, this uh, young, unknown kind of universe of social media, we actually don't really know what's out there. So it's a little bit harder to defamiliarize it because we don't have familiar concept. But when you actually apply these techniques to, to the kind of conventional things like Impressionism, Manga, Van Gogh, classical art, I think the best thing you get out of quantitative analysis is the familiarization, but not of your perception of reality, but of your perception of cultural history. Okay, so first I'm going to gather myself because I've realized I'm sitting next to somebody who didn't also shed a tear when the Naruto manga ended last month. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. It did? Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I, nobody told me I probably, would have had, I probably would have had a tear. I probably had a tear because now the data set becomes final. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, so there are a couple of answers. Uh, sure, there are a couple of answers to Nick's uh, uh, question. So I could begin. So again, you know, the question again was just about communities and practices that we think uh, do this kind of work of uh, of defamiliarizing computing practices in, in, in some way that's productive. And so one, I could just talk about some of the kind of places I think are interesting or places I publish, you know, communities, computer-supported cooperative work, bring a lot of insights in from sociology, you know, different, uh, different AI groups that are focused on issues like narrative. But I'd rather talk a little bit more about, uh, about my personal mot motivation here uh, because it doesn't just come from uh, computing. There's, there are a couple of different you know, types of motivation. It's, it's you know, thinking about world building as, as a form of critical uh, inquiry and, and insights. So that, you know, that's, uh, that's one. You know, works like uh, Invisible Man, but also works like Samuel R. Delaney's you know, work where he, begin, where he begins to use uh, a kind of interesting structure, you know, so interesting formal structure to comment upon society. You know, so invisible man using a, 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 a concept of invisibility for, to, to comment on a particular form of racial invisibility. But Samuel Delaney you know, beginning to create a semiotics of a, of a wide array of different kind of representations. Also systems in which you use meaningful difference to understand uh, you know, content, so the Rashomon effect, you know, showing the same scene with, with, with different uh, uh, incommensurate uh, uh, endings or results, you know, each each time, and and the, and the end result is in the contrast or the simulation in, in, in some way, using simulation to have effects such as this, uh, and then also and works that have a, a balance between improvisation and formal representation. So what I mean is that you it, uh, you, you have authors that use formal structures such as Italo Calvino, uh, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. You know, it's a wonderful novel you know, that's richly evocative, 
but it's actually created based on an, an algorithm. You, know, you, you open it up and read. It says something like, uh, uh, you were about to read, you know, this, is liter- you know, this is what it actually says, you were about to read Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler begins to describe how smoke drifts over the pages as you read. You get to the end of the chapter and you realize that uh, it's the, wrong, you know, the next chapter is, is the wrong book or you realize that the rest of the book is blank and you have to keep on going and, ch- and getting new books and you become the reader. You know, so you have this evocative story world that I think is quite successfully created along with an algorithmic structure. The same thing happens in some forms of jazz improvisation, like Charles Mingus. It has some very orchestrated components, some very chaotic, improvised uh, components, improvisation as a way of composition you know, a- a- as well, and then using that for political commentary. You know, so you know, so what well, you know, I'm saying here is that, you know, that, that you know, one way that, that, that the kind of communities and practices I'm interested in are ones that look at improvisation on, on one hand and, and subjective conveyance of meaning and building worlds and structures and then also the very formal structure that you need in order to construct your, your uh, work. So that, yeah, that's a kind of motivation for the kind of social cultural commentary in the work. But the other side of it is, uh, is something like this, which is from uh, uh, mathematics, uh, which is, you know, so this is the work of Joseph Gogan, who happened to be, who was my uh, academic uh, advisor, and one of the things he did was begin to describe social systems, you know, so you know, semiotic systems, for example, interfaces, you know, graphical user interfaces like you would have on your desktop, in very formal mathematical ways, understanding that it's very limited uh, in, in some ways, but it's the same as if you were trying to estimate uh, the amount of gas you would need to get from here to Boston. You could do it very mathematically like this, or you could just know miles per gallon and, and do a kind of estimate. You know, so one of the sort of things I've been interested in is trying to do this, this, kind of, uh, is this kind of analysis in a way that's more accessible. And so, you know, so for example, taking a game such as uh, uh, this game uh, Passage, you know, this is a critically acclaimed game that, that's thinking about uh, life and, and death, these very subjective issues. Let me turn off the, this. <laughs> right, so you, ha- so you have this game that has a very formal kind of structure to it in some ways. Right, you're this character, this is the author who's moving along the screen. Right, you have these life events such as falling in love and, and, and the partnering you can choose to do or or not. You have this character that is translated further and further as you go. You'll have, at the the very beginning, the right side was obscured because you can't see the future. You're constantly changing. You continue aging within the game. And, And it comes to this tragic conclusion. The game is always a five minute experience with the same ending despite that you can navigate it in different ways. And actually a number of people find it to be quite poignant in much the same way that you get that uh, traditional poetry is. And one of the things that we've been, that I've been interested in doing is say, you know, looking at the structure and the metaphors. You know, so life is a journey. Moving across the screen is a kind of, kind of journey here. Life's challenges are, 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 are mazes. And so they're very structured families of metaphor that you can find. This is actually found from the artist statement about the game you know, and just pulling out these bolded po- points just to show that, uh, for example, he actually talks about toward the end of life. There's no future left. 
right? Lifetime is a space. There's directionality, territory in front of you. All of these metaphors are invoked. And then beginning to think about how those, you know, so going from that very mathematical definition to one that's a bit more accessible, uh, uh, which I, I won't go into the details of here, but it can help you then to look at the structure of how those metaphors are implemented within the system. And you can begin to see things such as, uh, well, life is a journey with a past, present, and future. The screen is actually subdivided into three areas, the past area, which is obscure, the present area, and the future area. It, begin, it can begin to look systematically at how some of these kind of values are structured. And, and, and again, this is the way, you know, since the question was about defamiliarization, it's just to say that you have this game that you could just say, it affects me and it's poignant in some kind of way. But what we've begun to do here is to say, well, let's look at the structure of the system mathematically, but then make that mathematical representation accessible you know, to, to people that might not necessarily do the, the, the category theory uh, behind it, and begin to have insights such as to say that, uh, well, from that original metaphor, what's actually preserved when you map it to the implementation? You know, if partnering is important in life uh, for this particular author, is that something that's less or, or more important than dying with, within the game? Yeah, so, and, and so that, that's a bit of an extended example, but the, but the point, final point is, is just that looking at, at cultural meaning in a very structured so, sort of way, yeah, I, I think, is one way to uh, make you know, these cultural aspects that are usually implicit within systems uh, uh, obvious and, and also defamiliarize ourselves with just the surface level, the screen level of the system. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. So I, I actually want to get on to the... Can I just add one? I promise. Okay, 30 yes, seconds, yes. which means 45 seconds. Yeah. Well, actually, I was thinking, so, you know, um, so I kind of made this statement, and I will stand by it, but the 20th century, which is now unfortunately over, right, so best as, you know, the, anyway, it was a good one. Uh, we had montage, dialectic, you know, totalitarianism, Australia. Now we just have, right, consumerism data. Anyway. Uh, but so the Australian was about making reality strange. So now we have big data, data analytics, data science, visualization, which is always going back to 19th century realism, like literature and painting. The realism was not about naturalism. Realism was about representing the types of reality, right? Balzac or Flaubert or Tolstoy saying the type of a peasant, the type of a provincial, you know, unhappy woman in life. And since the data science or data mining is by definition about finding patterns in the data, assumes that this data, these patterns are actually were, we're now kind of back to this age of realism. So how does Australia fit in, right? So I think that this artistic work, which you know, like people like people like him is doing, is even more important because we're back to this kind of naive, naive realism, finding finding patterns in reality. Okay. Right. Okay. And this, I guess, my one, my one brief you know, comment there, uh, you know, too, is that I'm actually not interested in a kind of social realism, but rather to use simulation and modeling to, uh, to evoke cultural imagination you know, through, through, the, through these kind of systems. And, and then finally, that it's not doing it, you know, it's inspired maybe by some of the kind of world building and, and culture building that other kind of works do. But actually, I'm interested in computationally specific ways of evoking these, these kind of effects. So it's not emulating the novel, but saying, how can we have cultural commentary and social commentary? through the algorithm or through the data structure. Yeah, so uh, electronic literature, interactive fiction, Twitter bots, uh, National Novel Generation Month, art games, are all things I would have talked about um, because there's a lot of rich communities doing work in this area. Actually, uh, Jason Rohr, uh, whose passage uh, was uh, shown by Fox, uh, will have an exhibit at the Davis Museum at Wellesley in the coming year. Um, and, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of activity that's happening. I was glad to hear the connections between Sort of avant-garde concepts and 
um, the, uh, the mainstream that Love has made, which is, is a, a current in his work, and also Fox's you know, sort of explicit modeling and connection to history in his discussion. But let me ask, um, rather than ramble on myself, if I could have some questions from the audience, I want to invite you to uh, uh, engage with Fox and Love and uh, ask about some of these topics or others that are related. You know, for, for the recording, could you, could you use the mic there? But you can lie about who you are. <laughs> we just yeah. need the name in the, in the data set. doesn't mean you have the real name. Right? My name is Greg Beyer uh, from the Tibetan Buddhist Resource Center. Quick question. You said earlier uh, the data, the economic data, was better on Broadway from social media than from the government side. Could you expand on that a little oh, bit? Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, uh, no, it's, it's not exactly what I said, but thanks for asking. Well, so basically when we started with projects, right, we said, well, let's just collect social media data because we designed like a system we'll have to do it, right? So you get Instagram, you know, Twitter, etc., and you don't know if you get all of it, but you don't know. But what you get is what you get, right? Because it's machine, like the machine puts with, you know, you know, the stamp which comes through. I mean, of course, it's noisy, but it's probably pretty good. Now, when you look at economic data, well, first of all, you don't have economic data on the kind of block level. What you have is tracks. So New York City is divided into like something like 100 tracks, which are bigger than a block, smaller than zip code. They haven't changed much since like 1900s. Right? And then uh, what you have is you have a US, US census. Every 10 years, we do like real census. And then every year, what we do is we kind of take like 10% of the population and send people. We knock on your door. If you open the door, we'll ask you, and then we publish these updates. But it's completely, completely like probabilistic. So if you look at the tables you get from U.S. Census, so here's latest 2013 economic data for New York. First of all, it's broken into these large blocks. And then next to the column, which has income data, there's a column which says errors, like 50%. If you actually look at, like, you, you go to U.S. kind of census, you know, kind of data website, it says average rent in Soho $1,300. How come you guys don't live in Soho? Like all the rents are three times less. Average salary around Times Square is $300. That's how bad it is. So when Piketty becomes famous because he just goes to IRS data. And that's it. So I think everybody understands this data is bad. I didn't know that. I mean, I think I have to go fix economics now, right? Because so what I realized is, you know, surprisingly, social media data in comparison is very, very good. But the government data is not that good. I'm sure there are some economists in the room. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm full of shit. Please tell me. But it actually was very funny to realize that, you know. Yeah, so we don't have anything better, right? That's why we kept one variable, which is income. Even when we started to look at variables like red, we're like, this is just some science fiction, you know. So I know maybe somebody in the room like, knows a better answer, right? But it's kind of terrifying that there are millions and millions of economists and all the studies, and we're all kind of working with data, which is so problematic, you know. I feel this short. Um, so I actually was curious about the interface. This is a very superficial question, but the interface I saw go by in Fox's talk, um, the GUI that I saw, and what that was for building, if that was with Grio or what project that was associated with, it looked very interesting. 
Uh, sure. So you know that uh, I'll, I'll try to bring it up here, but that interface was for the Chimera system, uh, and it's. Be easier to find find this way. Yeah, so this this interface is for the you know for the Chimera system, and uh, so the kind of, the kind of game that that you saw that I showed at the end, you know, especially you know, so especially right now it's suited for you know, visual novel style, style games. But actually, you know, one of the things we're doing is plugging it into uh, Unity. That's one of the things that even a, a PhD student was, was very keen on. You know, e even just today, we've done you know, the the system. You know, right now can do you know, can have sprite based animation. You can represent you know, narrative structures or whatever kind of structure you want with uh, you know, sort of, uh, looping you know, structure, nested structures within it. You can you know, build in different tests at different points where you, for different categories. Say you know, if you want to vary you know, utterances others make. You know, say based on if you're an increasing member in this category, then you should say this sort of thing. You know, so so it's actually uh, a system. For, you know, so you can see a, a little bit of it here. You know, so you can change these different uh, na narrative elements. You can think in terms of you know, the actors on the stage, the social categories, different features. So that those, those are things such as you know, the speaking ability or the dressing ability of, of each character. Uh, and, and so it's a system for building uh, essentially these kind of identity-driven uh, narratives. Uh, and again, that could range from 2D you know, up through the, the, you know, the current work that we're trying to build is, uh, is uh, moving towards you know, 3D as well. Right. I like to think about it this way that you know, rather that you know, like I said rather than just having a graphics engine like like unreal system there could be a social identity engine you could plug in you can do sort of things like and most of these systems work very top down you know, where if you want to you know, say a character to say uh, something because you're an elf you know, mostly it's hard coded welcome you dirty fill in the blank elf you know something like this but but you could imagine plugging this into a system instantiating every character in a city that has this worldview and then have you know, one character that's the kind of radical that has a little bit of a different worldview that that you yeah, in, inherited from you know, so you can you can hard code these kind of identity views uh, in, in much more dynamic ways using a system like this okay hi um so I think both of you guys, especially Fox, with your last response just now, um, are going into a lot of um, uh, great detail about the, the really great narrative potential of the tools you're building, especially just kind of to make this more accessible for people to, to perhaps create their own narratives. Um, it seems to me, though, that also that these tools could be used to make a lot of the other types of narratives that aren't, like, obviously narratives, a lot of the things that Lab was talking about, about the increased categorization of our lives um, being really driven by big data practices and uh, that could really shape uh, institutional decisions that are being made at all different levels, right? So um, the tools you guys are built right now, the problem with that is like, that's a very like opaque process for every everybody, right? I, I'm in a, a policy class right now where they're, they're talking about this very issue and all of the, the checks and balances we've had before have all um, relied on consumer-based checks and balances where consumers needed to be able to understand what's the data information being collected about me, can I check it for accuracy, things like that. That's not what's happening today with a lot of these big data practices. So I'm curious for you guys, um, what do you see as the potential for using these methods and the tools you're bringing for, um, as tools for critique 
um, of some of these other uh, data-driven narratives that we, we see popping up. Okay. Well, go ahead. Okay, well, no? I switched to you, but sure. yeah, I'm happy to talk. Let me come to the right uh, slide here. Yes. So, uh, uh, so, so the the idea is, you know, how can you make this more accessible, and what's the potential for critique of uh, uh, of a data analytics system rather than just doing sort of our own you know, data analytics? So, uh, one is, you know, you know, first of all, I think that there's potential for Abuse of a number of kind of you know, of kind of work that's not accessible by the mainstream. So, for example, if you if you think about data analytics, and a lot of times people have this critique that uh, well, that could be or any of these systems could be used you know, sort of for the dark side you know, as well. You know, but you can also think about it. Say, research on redlining, say redistricting housing zones could be used then to redistrict in a way that is discriminatory, right? So, any of these practices could be taken up. I think one of the issues here is the black box issue that that, that Lev mentioned. So, one of the things that we try to do. Is make these kind of processes uh, you know, familiar, accessible. Make you, know, you release some of these tools, uh, you know, open source, so people can then go and use use those tools uh, uh, themselves. And then also using uh, uh, sometimes we'll restrict ourselves to say use privately uh, uh, to, to use publicly available data that people put out there, and then make uh, and make tools to think with for people. Yeah, so you know, I just want to you know, just give one brief example, which is the work with uh, one of my PhD students that that, that we see here. That's uh, uh, Chang Yu Lim, where you just begin thinking about things like uh, in the past we had these narrow lenses on uh, social status. Like you just look and you could say which one of these is sort of high status, which one is not high status, and then it's, and then it's beginning to do data mining and, and systems to begin to think about status performance in, in these kind of systems, except for in this game, which happens to be considered America's number one war-themed hat simulator by, by some, which is called Team Fortress 2. You know, so, so then you know, we've taken these phenomena of social status and, and made apparent the way that they play out in the system to say that if you social network in this way, you're likely to perform a high social status within, within the system. Or if you perform on the social network this way, you have less friends, you have less posts, and so forth, then you can find correlations and say that you might actually perform a differently in the game. In the game. You know, so this is a way of using data analytics, but the aim is to take these social phenomena that cultural theorists or sociologists would typically study and then say, well, now here's a tool that anybody could use and think about how status performance or, you know, say, gender inequity or other kind of issues then play out within software. So okay, I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, so. I think one of my remaining intellectual heroes is Bruno Latour, and uh, maybe some of you know uh, a very kind of known article he wrote in 2000s, which was called something like "Why Critique Run Out of Steam." Right. So for me, I don't assume necessarily that my job is intellectual and uh, uh, kind of paid by universities to critique. What I like about software is that instead of critiquing, we can actually build. Right. So Wikipedia, for example, is a great example of that open source movement. Right. So I think in the 20th century, intellectuals were really kind of in this really fucked up position, right? And that's why you know, people like Walter Benjamin, you know, really, really unhappy, because you have this mass media, you know, you have newspapers and TV, et cetera, and all you can sit with like in the corner and critique. Well, now we can actually compete, right? right? You can create your own social networks, like Elob about advertising, and maybe it's not going to succeed, but the next one will succeed. We can create our own open, our own, um, knowledge structures like Wikipedia, and so on and so forth, right? 
So I think uh, I think kind of my duty, right, is not to critique just for sake of critiquing, but rather to understand, to make certain issues visible, to help others to understand what I think are the key issues in understanding this opacity and black blackness, even to enable other people to kind of build the alternatives, right? So to me, that's really what separates 21st century from 20th century, right? But mass media no longer has complete monopoly on information. It's no longer up to New York Times and Putin and people, organizations like that. And we actually can make alternatives. I'll go for it. I don't know what the Right, right. Okay. So, Whatever so, is break it. That's what I was just right. trying to say, right? <laughs> so with that then, um, I'm curious, do you see um, kind of some of the interesting potential of that being um, that you're going to be able to kind of represent the same kind of information we've always been working with in a way that's going to like challenge our intuitions and maybe uh, get us to re-question uh, question what we thought the output was going to be from it? Or, or are, do you think that you'll be introducing variables or um, the things like that have to do more with like textual analysis as a valid like um, metric for measuring things and like perceiving social reality and is that going to be a contest like something that's going to be really tough to contest in like maybe traditional social science fields are you guys like going there like so I guess the question is are you trying to speak to social science or is this a different discipline who that is just more social in nature uh, of, that might have been a lot of yeah, questions but yeah yeah. Well, so I think maybe I would refer to Latour once again briefly, right? So I think, I think out of all like famous kind of social sciences, he's the only one, well, he was the earliest one to understand the importance of big data visualization analysis. And he made this very powerful argument, which I don't know, we don't have to agree, but he says that when Durkheim invented social science in the late 19th century, he makes mistakes. Because he thinks social science should be about modeling reality, like simple equations, right? Kind of this top-down statistics, you know, because he's seduced by physical sciences, he says, just as physicists are kind of modeling reality, like Newton has these equations, we can make this kind of science of the social. But of course, he doesn't have, you know, very fine tools and measurements, right? So he kind of realizes, oh my God, the suicide rate is the same in Norway every year. That's amazing. So, we, so there's something about society, some general patterns which are above individuals. So, so Latour says, well, now, you know, we actually have these millions of data points about billions of people. So potentially we can create a new type of social science which doesn't use abstract terms, which, which basically can get away, right? doesn't have to use terms like, you know, like classes or status or divide the human beings into like five or four variables. We can have a kind of social science of individual. Now, I don't completely understand, like, right, the end of it, because, of course, being French academic, at certain point, Latour has to get really obscure, so he can't really tell you. Maybe, maybe he doesn't know or he can't tell you, but he has to be obscure. But, you know, uh, I was invited to his lab. I was very honored. He says, Lev, I think you practically try to do what we try to theorize. So I think what I see with work, right, it's a kind of humanities in the sense that humanities has always been about the individual in particular, but humanities has always been about selection. I'm going to talk about most important artists, maybe it is white artists or like the artists of color, but basically it's about what's important. Even with social science, which was dealing with patterns, which we're dealing with all of society, but on the level of like this very kind of, right, kind of big concepts or these high-level statistics. So how can you have a kind of science of a study of society, which combines, right, which combines it, which is about, which is kind of about patterns, but not necessarily going to this kind of big generalizing concepts. 
I mean, I know it sounds a little bit unclear, but believe me, if I was clear, I would tell you, right? But I think we have possibility to reinvent how we think about society, right? And I just want to say that journalism, unfortunately, operates exactly the way that 19th century science was, because we're going to look at, for example, events in Kiev or events in Times Square, like last night, and just, and just show you three pictures, which I think are representative. Well, why not show you all the pictures, so I think this is maybe very simplistic, but I think it's the first step in this direction, right? Why not look at all the data? Because now we can. The computers can help us to do it. And, and then ultimately, I'm, I'm going to shut up in a second. The problem is not the computer. The computer is very democratic. The problem is the human being. How can we think about the world without imposing or reducing it to a few categories and a few examples? So how can we help computers to help us think better, right? That's, I think, where we should be going. Right, and so I can add there. You know, there's one, you know, the one classic way that interdisciplinary research goes forward is also to say what are the important questions, and then bring to bear the disciplines that you think can give useful, useful answers and a kind of dialogue with each other. And so I think of my work in, in some ways like that, where right? you know, the way in which it becomes disciplinary when you say is it social science? A lot of times that's about the register for communicating the work. You know, so that means if I want to talk about this work to sociologists or to computer scientists, I might have to. You know, they might have different values systems for what, what consists of assessment and evaluation, different language, what are the important questions. Understanding those values allows me to commu communicate better, but for me, it's, it's the core questions that, that, that drive you know, you know, bringing these different disciplines together and, and to bear on, on these problems. And I think there were some there were some parallels. You know, so, for example, when uh, when that says impressionist painting isn't necessarily what you think when you look at it uh, from this way, we've had some systems where we you know, say use somebody's social network, friends and friends of friends, hundreds of people, and then you know, rather than just looking at who's tagged himself as a gamer, you, know, you say you know, look at uh, 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 using using something called pointwise mutual information. Tag a few particular games. You spread activation and find what are the other things that people tend to like if they like these games. And when we ran it with, uh, with certain MIT students, we actually found about half of what they liked there was classical music composers, and then there were some other games that showed up. You know, so again, that you know, was unfamiliar in the sense that we started by saying that if you like these three games, what else do you, have you tagged that, that, that you like? Uh, and we've looked at this category, but then in the same as the Impressionist painting, there was a result that might not have been expected by, uh, by, by every user of the system. Then the system becomes a tool to think with. You think, well, then how do I compare to one of this, this category that has emerged from, from, from the data? But I do think it is important at the same time as doing this uh, bottom-up data-driven approach to also th because to think about the social categories that, that, that are theorized in social, in social sciences and lived by people because even if they are, in fact, uh, phantasms, people live in response to these social categories. You know, so, so, you know, so to look at the ways that those social illusions show up in software to say that this is discriminatory because if you play this game as a female character, you're not going to be able to play one of the uh, standard roles with, within it, which is something we found with some of oh, our, our sorry, research. Uh, that's all right. I'm not showing anything just now. It's good somehow. Somehow it's very good. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great graph. <laughs> right. yeah. No yeah. labels, okay? Right. Well, well, this is actually showing. The, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> anyway how, how you might run a clustering algorithm and find what's emergent within the data that you didn't think was there. Yeah, so this is to say uh, you know, we're actually finding the, the status of different people within the game, which is doing something like I was describing before. You run the algorithm and you find some information that was that, that's in the data, some patterns that are there. But then we we want to go and reconcile that with 
with our, with our social understandings that come from other fields, like what it means to be of high social status. How are you then treated differently if you're dressed in, in a way that's, a tribute, that's associated with performing high social status and so forth? Yeah, so as I say, I don't think the data-driven approach means throw out all of the cultural analysis, you know, analysis of hegemony and social structure and hierarchy and power and all of, all, all of this, but it means we have a new lens and there might be phenomena that we didn't expect that, that, that emerge and a new way to understand them. Well, we've come to the end of our time. I hope that our guests made computing strange, if it wasn't strange already for you. And I'd like you to join me in thanking them. Thank you.